Well, at this time, I'd like to invite a guest speaker today. And uh, I don't know, it sounds funny even saying that. But today, we have the absolute privilege of having Pastor Steve Whitmer speak to us today. And, yeah. And in continuing in our series on shalom and just how uh, helping to walk in peace and, and wholeness. And, you know, probably coming up, uh, it was a little over seven years ago where I had a great conversation with uh, Pastor Steve just out there uh, uh, during a wedding or after a wedding before a, a reception right here in, in July of 2010 where he just uh, encouraged and strengthened me and uh, has opened doors of opportunity. We're so grateful for his life and ministry. You may not see him a lot here. That's because he's so awesome. He's going around fixing the church all over the place, ministering to pastors that are ready to quit and encouraging them, he and Becky, lifting their hands up, doing incredible work, going up north and saying, God, how can we extend the, the tent pegs of what God's doing? You know, it'd be easy as you get older to retire, which if you want to retire, that's fine. But by retire, the world version, which is... I don't do anything anymore. I don't see that in the Bible. And he doesn't either because he's continuing to labor in into all that God has for him. Not quitting. New assignment and a fresh assignment, but he's not done yet. So can you give him a warm, come on, stand to your feet. Come on, come on. You can get up. Stand to your feet. Let's give honor where honor is due. Incredible man. So grateful for his ministry. Here you go. God bless you. I know you love that. <laughs> Oh, bless you. Thanks so much. That's probably the most uncomfortable thing a leader ever receives is affirmation. I would hope that that might come at the end of the service, not at the beginning before I speak. Uh, no, just kidding. Before I do share with you today, though, first of all, it's, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for praying for me as, I've, as I have traveled and done a fair bit of work uh, outside of this family. And it's wonderful to come home because this feels like sailing into a safe harbor where you, you come back and you think, ah, I can relax, I love the worship, I can be ministered to. That doesn't happen most places where I go because your own call, your own duty. And uh, to be able to come and just enjoy family and community is a gift to us. Before I preach, though, I want to share with you what I felt like God spoke to me during the prayer time before the service. I was asking, as I usually do, God, what do you want to do today? What is it you're wanting to say to your people? And I had a very clear picture, and I felt like I was to share this with you in, in, in just the way I saw it. I saw us all standing in worship, and we had in our hand those old vintage compasses, you know, the ones that we used to use, those of you that are as old as me, before GPS days, and use those to find your way out of, you know, the woods getting and whatever. But I saw all of us standing in worship with a compass in our hand, and the Lord began to walk through the crowd. And he was taking our compasses and holding them. And I realized what he was doing is he was realigning our compasses because some of our compasses had been exposed to magnetic substances and they were off kilter. They were not pointing true north. And what God wants to do in our lives is have us point our lives, our values, our goals, our dreams, point directly toward the Lord. I feel like God wants to do a reset in my life today. How about you? Are you willing to have him come? He's the healer. I believe that you're my healer. I believe that you are more than enough for me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's safe? That he can come and take the, your compass, the compass of your life, and reset it today, and it will always be good. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith to believe that today. 
that we would invite you into this house as we have through our worship. Now we invite you as an act of our will, and we ask you to come, Lord, and just bring healing to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that our souls would be restored, and you would give us a prescription by your Holy Spirit to be able to lead and to live our lives in a way that brings you greatest glory and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last several weeks, Pastor Craig has been guiding us in this theme of shalom or peace, Hebrew word for that uh, speaks both peace, but it's deeper and richer than the English word for peace. It means wholeness in all of its components. He's guided us through talking uh, this, that we are a spirit, we have a soul, and we live in a body. Pastor Craig did a brilliant job last week of talking about wholeness in our body and the uh, week before talking about uh, our spirit being whole or full or filled with the Holy Spirit. Our theme verse for this season has been found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, where it says, Now, may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Wholeness, body and soul and spirit. We're a spirit. We have a soul. We live in a body. But interesting is, is I talk about, my, my topic today is to talk about wholeness in our soul. The soul has three components. The soul has three primary components. It's called the will, the mind, and the emotion. The will, the mind, and the emotion. Please forgive me. Today I'm not going to preach. I'm going to teach. I'm going to give you a bit of a sampling of what Becky and I do when we go away to, to do uh, clergy seminars with Focus on the Family. And so uh, you might want to pray right now. If you've ever prayed, you might want to pray right now. Because what I'm going to do in about the next 35 minutes, we take about two hours to teach in a seminar. So I saw some of you say, oh, Jesus, please. I, I saw that look on your faces just now. I have cut a fair bit out of our teaching, just so you know. But the soul has three components, body, soul, uh, body, uh, body, soul, spirit. But the soul has three components, will, mind, and emotion. We see this represented perhaps in the will where the scripture says, I delight to do your will, O God, where we have a choice. We can make a choice to delight in the will of God. We can align our will with the will of God. We can align our will with the spirit of God. That's the best way to live our lives. But also we have a mind. And the scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Our soul can guide the direction of our life by the things that we think and the and things we believe about ourselves and the things we believe about others. I don't have time to unpackage this. But I can tell you, I could tell you multiple times in my life where I have believed something about someone else. I thought I heard them say this, only to find out years later that that's not what they meant at all. And I had lived under this illusion for years. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And the third component of our soul is our emotions, where the psalmist David says, why are you downcast, O my soul? The soul can impact our bodies. It can cause us to walk through life in a way where we're damaged. Our soul impacts our body, our soul impacts our spirit. How does that happen? Our soul impacts our body in multiple ways. Do you know the phrase emotional eater? Our soul impacts our body. Our soul causes us to think, you know what, what I really need right now to satisfy this ache in my heart is another double cream donut. Just honestly. <laughs> Hallelujah. Most Canadians go for therapy at one of two places. Starbucks or see you know you know you know where or or if you're Daniel you go to Outback Steakhouse right there you go 
But our soul is impacts our body. How about this? How does our soul influence our spirit? Our soul influences our spirit in, in very practical ways. Think of Joshua's challenge at the end of his life. Uh, he was 110 years old. Joshua chapter 24 is the backdrop for this. And he calls the people together. All the leaders are gathered together. And he says, I'm an old man. I'm about to go home. He says, today, choose you this day whom you'll serve. Your soul impacts your spirit by informed choice. The choices we make as an act of our will can determine whether we live out God's destiny for our lives or not. The soul is incredibly important. We have to understand that God wants us to be whole, to have shalom, wholeness in our soul as well. Peace I leave with you. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The peace, the shalom that Jesus has for us is a, is a wholeness that comes into our world even when it's chaotic and broken. He wants to bring release and wholeness and fruitfulness and overflow in our lives. But Jesus tells us this. He says, but the thief, John 10, 10, comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. You see, this back it up. Jesus says, I want you to have wholeness. I want your life to overflow with everything I have. I want you to be complete. I want you to be peaceful. I want you to know joy and victory and fruitfulness, even when it's crazy and chaotic. Disciples see a Galilee, the middle of a, of a storm that threatened to capsize their boat. They were bailing and rowing like crazy. And where is Jesus? He's asleep in the back of the boat. And, he wake, and when they wake him up, he says, Jesus, don't you care? We're about to perish. And he goes, where's your faith? I'm with you. Peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I to you. The peace that comes because the Prince of Peace is in your boat. The peace that comes because God's presence is with us. The wholeness he wants to bring us. The wholeness that says, I need to see with heaven's eyes, not earth's eyes. I want to talk to you about what Satan does and how he comes uh, to bring brokenness. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to, and to destroy. Sociologists and psychologists tell us that there are seven primary aspects of the human life and existence. And I think we have family, spiritual uh, our mental health or how we think, our physical health, our social relationships, career and work, financial. These seven primary aspects are, are what make up our life. Now, let me use the bucket analogy. Imagine your life, all seven of these areas represented on what could be perhaps a wooden barrel. With every stave, every section of wood, so to speak, one of these seven aspects of life. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. He wants us to overflow with life. But Satan comes to do what? Steal, kill, and to destroy. So what Satan tries to come and do is he attacks us at a point of weakness. Doesn't matter which of these seven areas. Let's just say he attacks your family. Get the picture? How full can you fill the bucket now? To the level of brokenness. To the level of brokenness in our life. You see, you will only ever be as full, only ever able to be filled up to the point of our brokenness. Jesus wants us to be full and overflowing. He wants us to know wholeness, to life, to enjoy this life that he's given us, life to the full. But the truth is this, that because we are, we are a being that's interacted, brokenness anywhere, brokenness anywhere 
limits our capacity for fullness everywhere. Brokenness anywhere. Limits our capacity for fullness everywhere. You see, we need to ask the Lord to step into our lives. You know what I'm talking about. And, and our brokenness impacts those around us. You understand that, don't you? You know how this works? Let me, let me start a phrase, you finish it. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody. My point is this. Jesus wants to step into our world and bring wholeness to our lives. Body, soul, and spirit. He wants to bring his shalom to us. He wants to bring his fulfillment. His, he wants our lives to be overflowing. That's the God that we serve. He loves us so much. He stepped down from glorious heaven into our brokenness, into our world, so that we could know wholeness. His body broken for us so that we could know healing and wholeness and fulfillment. That's the message today. He leads us, Psalm 23, verse 1 through 3. You know it well. well. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He re- what? He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. When I was a young man, and I learned this in Sunday school, I have to confess to you that I didn't really like it. I didn't like taking naps. And so when someone says God is going to make me lie down, I thought God was going to make me lie down and take a nap, and that did not seem like a good answer for me. I wanted God to get up and play with me. You know what I'm saying? But he makes me lie down. He leads me beside the quiet waters. The goal is that he restores our soul. The God wants to step in and bring healing and wholeness to every broken part of our life. We live in a world that damages us. No, a single one of us have walked through life unscathed from the difficulties of life. I know. I've talked with many of you. I travel. Every one of us carries wounds and brokenness. But Jesus says that he, the good shepherd, will step into our world. He teaches us. He makes us lie down in green path. He leads us beside still waters for the express purpose of bringing healing and restoration to our souls. I want to talk today about restoration and how we can position ourselves for the healing that God can bring. So that's my teaching today. He restores my soul. When we think about the analogy of still waters, I want to flip the coin just for a minute. Before I talk about three antidotes, three prescriptions from God, three unforced rhythms of grace, I want to talk about the rapid currents of life, the things that pull us away from who we are and what God has called us to be. But let me leave a word picture with you. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 15, there's an image of the dragon which represents the devil, and he's attacking the bride or the woman, which is representative of the church. And it says this, that he, Satan, the dragon, spewed floodwaters from his mouth to, quote, overtake the woman and to sweep her away in the torrent. Currents, rapids that are intended by, by demonic design to take us away, sweep us away like floodwaters away from what God wants us to do and who God has called us to be, currents. What are some of the currents that we face? What are some of the things that attempt to flood our lives and overtake? Well, let me, have you ever said, man, I came back to work on Monday and my inbox was flooded? Have you ever said something like, man, I feel like I'm treading water and I'm about to drown. I got so much work to do. Have you ever said things like that? If you have, you probably have understood the intention of the dragon. 
I believe that this picture in Revelation chapter 12 is a picture of Satan's scheme for the end time saints. If I can just simply say that. I think that he would love to wash us away from God's plan by keeping us so ridiculously busy. I'm sorry I'm ahead of myself in my message, but I can't help myself. It's a scheme of the powers of darkness, and we can't know wholeness if we stay in the rapids of life. If we don't pull over to the still waters and allow the Lord to restore our souls, we won't know wholeness. That's That's the prescription. Let me tell you, if you don't hear anything else I say, you can go to sleep now if you want. Please don't. If you do, don't snore, please. If you don't hear anything else, this is my point. You won't know wholeness until you discover stillness. You don't know wholeness until you discover the God that hides himself in stillness because he's the one that brings healing. It's not stillness. It's stillness with. Stillness with him, his presence, his power. Uh, so we want to talk a bit about currents, the things that keep coming at us relentlessly, these currents of life that keep going and going, the things that tend to pull us away from what we're called to do and who we are called to be. And then we'll finish our time with three quiet eddies that will be on forced rhythms of grace. When Becky and I teach this topic, we, we offer a lot of discussion with our pastors and leaders, and we will say to them, what is one current that you face, something that wearies you or something that pulls you along, something that exhausts you in your daily life? And they answer things like, well, health and family issues or relationships that are, that are toxic or meetings and deadlines and divisive issues and a whole host of those kinds of things. But the number one current that they talk about with great passion is the current of technology. So let me land here for just a second. And I can get away with this, and you're going to say he's just an old dude. That way he's, he doesn't like technology. Listen, my phone does everything. It cheeps and burps and blasts and wiggles, and it vibrates in my pocket. I'm even at the point that some days I don't have it on me, and I still feel it vibrating in my pocket, which I understand is a psychotic reaction to being addicted to your phone. Um, Daniel told me that this week, so I need deliverance. Jesus, help me. <laughs> but technology, what it does and what it's doing, as helpful and useful as what it is, anything that's overdone becomes harmful to us. And an interesting, in a, in a uh, recent article that we, uh, that we read, it was a research project that was actually, <laughs> comically enough, it was actually posted in Wire magazine, which is the magazine for, for, technolo- for technologists in, in the information industry. And this was what they discovered. I'm going to pull one little piece out of the study. The top 10% of smart technology users, that's if you have a smartphone or an iPhone or a, whatever, and, and anybody who's early early adapter, you feel like you're the top 10%? You're going to acknowledge that in front of me? Really? Okay. On average... What they discovered, the top 10% of users touched their phone. Now, I'm not talking about typing a message where every letter counts. We're talking about a stroke or flip it or 5,000 times a day to the point that the phone has to be within reach and within sight or they go through a reaction similar to a person who's uh, going through drug withdrawals, just saying. Another whole story. But five. let me break that down for you. If you sleep eight hours a day but have your phone the other 16 hours of the day with you and you are a top 10% user, 5,000 touches, you are touching your phone, searching, swiping, looking 312.5 times an hour. Just saying. But you say, well, that's not me. You know, I, Pastor, I, I'm actually on my phone 18 hours a day, so it's not so bad. Well, good for you. If, you're on the, if you only sleep for six hours a day, 
and you're, you're spreading 5,000 touches out over 18 hours instead of 16, that's only, praise God, 278 times an hour. And you're saying, well, I'm not in the top 10%. A lot of you just got downgraded. The average amount of times touches in North America, average, average, I'm average, 2,500 times a day. Technology. I love it. It's how I stay connected. I text all the time. But there's an aspect of this when it's out of control. It's like the flood that comes out of the dragon's mouth. It's going to sweep us away. It minimally is, is stealing from us the ability to be present in our moments, present with the person that's right across the table from us, present. We need to be present with our kids, present with our spouses. They say this, social media is causing us to become antisocial. We're losing, with, we're losing face-to-face. We don't know how to communicate with the spouse across the table. I mean, this is not in my notes, and I am so hooped right now. I'm sorry. But, but this is so ridiculous. Listen, please hear my heart. I'm not anti-technology. I panicked just a moment ago to make sure my phone was turned off so it would not ring in the middle of my message because that would have been the ultimate foopaw to be talking about technology and having my phone go off. Currents. There are three deadly currents we want to talk about today. Uh, three are the, perhaps the most deadly. The first deadly current is the current of unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations. That's, uh, that's that place where we live in our culture, where, where we, we live under the, the weight of how everybody else thinks we should live and work and how should we, we should behave. And if everyone gave us a list of the expectations about how you should live and be how could you possibly survive under that load? 70% of the stuff on social media, pick on social media, I just heard this again yesterday, is fake. Why? Because we're driven to live out these false expectations. And forget about the expectations of others. What about the expectations you place on yourself? That's why the cosmetic industry is a multi-trillion dollar industry. Just saying. Because these expectations that we place upon ourselves are things like, man, you should always be available 24-7. You know, you should have the perfect family, the perfect marriage. You should be joyful all the time. You should have a perfect attitude. Your kids should be the best behaved kids on the planet. You should have a spotless home, and you should, and you should, and you should. Current of unrealistic expectations is a current that will take you away from what God wants you to do and who he's called you to be. Folks, Time to hang up the Superman outfit, to, t- to peel off the Wonder Woman costume, and just to step into the place of humility before the creator of the universe because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble, the people who allow themselves to be known for who they really are. That's humility. On really, second, the second current that is deadly in our lives is the current of stress. Now, let me give you this definition of of stress. Anything that annoys or threatens or prods, excites, scares, worries, hurries, angers, frustrates, challenges, and criticizes, reduces self-esteem, does that pretty well cover your life? I mean, is there anything we left out on that? That's Archibald Hart, a medical doctor who who studies uh, stress and his reaction on the human body. When I read that definition, I thought, oh, shoot. That was my clinical terminology because I realized that that pretty well sums up most of life in North America right now. But stress 
is good. It was intended by God initially to release this endorphin. It's good in this one sense. Only when we understand the stress uh, will happen to every one of us in our lives. But when it's overdone, it becomes incredibly unhealthy. Um, when we are stressed, it releases adrenaline in our bodies, which is the body's immediate reaction and answer for stressful situations. It speeds up our system and increases our heart rate, our blood pressure, our minds become more alert and focused, and, and, our, and our nervous system is stimulated. It was intended for that fight or flight response, but God never intended us to live constantly on adrenaline. What I'm reading in studies that frighten me right now is because of the pace of life in which we are living, that we are living more and more addicted and becoming addicted to adrenaline, where we go and we go and we go and we don't know how to shut down. It's a challenge for me. In the book that Dr. Archibald Hart wrote, it's called Adrenaline and Stress. He calls this pace of, he calls it hurry sickness, hurry sickness. It, become, it comes from an obsession to live and to do everything and to do it immediately. We have to do. And parents, there's a shift that's happening in the culture from the time that we were young parents raising kids. Our kids are, are still young. Um, they may be seeing 40 in the rearview mirror, but they're still young. It's a different pace of life now. And the challenge that your kid has to be involved in everything, every sport, ballet, music, and they have to be a 10 out of 10 at everything, man, that's crazy. That's adding a level of stress on the family. This, your kids don't need to be involved in more. They need more of you. Bottom line. Bottom line. That's another whole teaching for another whole day. But understand that this thing called adrenaline and stress or hurry sickness is living at a pace that's too fast for our bodies. And we, our bodies begin to break down. I had a, I had a, a young person who I adore in this church a number of years ago. When I was living out hurry sickness, real life, every day, in the ministry, doing the things of God, flying a million miles an hour, not taking care of myself in any way, not having good boundaries, not having good margins, and this, this godly young person came into my office one day and was talking about their world and what was going on, and I was doing the pastoral thing, but I'll never forget what she, that person said to me. Through tears, with great love, shaped my world. This person said to me, Pastor Steve, but I don't want to be like you when I'm old. Because what this person was reflecting is that I was living my life at a pace that was way too fast for my body. And I was sick. I had multiple rounds of pneumonia. I, my body was breaking down. My, I was so exhausted emotionally. I had a hard time sleeping at night. Part of the reason why we made the shift a few years ago was to step fully into God's call in our life, to give up those unrealistic expectations, not by you, but by the world, and those ones I had placed upon myself, that I had to be a super pastor. And I realized that I simply didn't have the energy anymore to lead the congregation the way it needed to be led. Fair assessment. Pastor Craig and Shanda, they, these, these beautiful pastors that God has placed here are the right ones for the season of time. And I don't have to be Superman. I could be grandpa. Is that okay? I could be grandpa in the house? I know my role. And it was terrifying for me to acknowledge that because I was living under this panic, this, this sense of, well, what will people think? And this is not in my notes. But I have one of my colleagues, a man I dearly trust, who said, you're going to do what? 
You're going to step down from the lead role of your church. What are you thinking? Have you heard from God? You could coast your way to retirement. Coast. And when he said the word coast, something in me just wanted to go and throw up. Because I thought, that's not what this is about. It's about focusing your life with a laser-sharp focus. What has God called you to do? And I realized the currents of ministry, the current of ministry, unrealistic expectations could pull me away from the very call that was really on my life, which was caring for pastors and leaders. I said I wasn't going to preach. Very, very sorry. But I'm not really sorry. You see, when we live under this, this condition called hurry sickness, when we live frankly, on adrenaline, what happens is we can experience a condition, a medical condition called anhedonia, which means the inability, the inability to experience joy. And how is that defined? Well, in this book, he says this, that we can come to the place where, where we begin to realize that we don't, the things that used to bring us great joy and the things we love to do are just, we are so spent that those things don't cause us any sense of reprieve at all or joy. Even our kids. We'll talk about that in just a second. Wow. Jesus, help me. John Ortberg says this in the book, The Life You've Always Run Wanted. He, he describes a story where he called his, a mentor who lived in another state, called him long distance and said to him, can you tell me, can you give me uh, uh, clarity on what it would take for me to become spiritually healthy, to become spiritually whole? And the mentor says, well, let me think about it. After a long Pause, he said. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And Ortberg says, I wrote that down feverishly and said, great, got it. What else? <laughs> and he said there was another very, very long pause. And the mentor said, there is nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry. For me, it was hurry and busyness that caused my family life to be broken. Now, we have a great marriage, trust me, but it could be better. I said to Becky yesterday, I want to have the best marriage. I want to have the best marriage. What do we need to do to make sure that Jesus, our healer, comes and brings us to the place of complete unity and, and, and intimacy in every way, body, soul, and spirit? Well, it's because I surrender my busyness to Jesus. And busyness is the third deadly current. Busyness is the third deadly current. And Eugene Peterson, in his book, The, the Contemplative Pastor, he, he answers this question, why am I so busy? Speaking to leaders, speaking to all of you. He says, there are two reasons why you're so busy. Number one, it's because you are vain. What? No, no, no. I am not vain. He says, yes, you are. Because in this culture... What we admire, what we place on the platform, what we give high fives to is the person, when you say, how are you doing? He's, oh, I am so busy. See, that becomes the litmus test for the quality of a leader. If you're busy, you must be doing something valuable. It's called vanity. It's because you're vain. And the second reason why sometimes we're so busy, I'm sorry if this is, this is speaking to me. I had to look in the mirror all week and, and examine my life before I teach this. And I realize there's still a fair bit of vanity inside Steve. My ego gets struck when someone says, oh, you're such a busy guy. Oh, wow, what, what's God do? It's vanity. It's not about us. It's never about us. If it comes about us, Jesus, help all of you. 
Number one, because we're vain. Second reason why we're busy, get this one. Second reason why we're busy is because we are lazy. You go, no, 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 no. Not lazy, busy. But his definition of lazy is this. When I give others the right to tell me what's important, and when I don't do the hard work of setting priorities in my life, whoa, lazy, because I don't do the hard work of setting priorities in my life. What keeps us busy? Well, my value is tied to my activity, perhaps. But what's wrong with being busy? Pastor Craig said this last week. You know, that old saying, I'd rather burn out than, what, rust out? But nonetheless, you're out regardless. Carl Jung put it this way. Carl Jung, Swiss psychologist, turn of the century, he said this, that hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Revelation chapter 12, verse 15. The dragon opened up his mouth, and out came water spewing to take the woman, the church, off course. Hurry is the devil. <laughs> and Archibald Hart says this, we have an intelligent adversary. If he cannot cause us to quit, then he will entice us to hurry even faster as we race to an early demise. Ouch. For everyone that grew up in my generation, you understand what I'm talking about here. Performance was what we were so tied to. Oh, my goodness. You see, when we're busy, we probably don't actually fulfill our calling. We may fulfill a shadow calling, but it's not really our true calling. We can do things that look good, but it may not be the things that God wants us to do. And we may be active, but not necessarily fruitful. Business, busyness does not guarantee fruitfulness. It just guarantees activity. And we may set ourselves up to suffer from what has been called hurry sickness. I think, Becky, if you're willing, I, I would like you to, to read a, a story um, this is a story that we include as part of our, our focus on the family uh, training that we do. And it's a simple story. It's written by, uh, by John Ortberg. And he tells a story about, and it really, I think, it's a little comic relief moment. Do you need that in the middle of the sermon? But it's also a story about how to become on busy and really to acknowledge that. Some time ago, I was giving, um, this is John Ortberg speaking, giving a bath to our three children. I had a custom of bathing them, them together more to save time than anything else. I knew eventually I would have to stop the group bathing, but for the time being, it seemed efficient. Johnny was still in the tub, Laura was out and safely in her pajamas, and I was trying to get Mallory dried off. Mallory was out of the water, but what was doing what has come to be known in our family as the Dee-Daw Day dance. This consists of her running around and around in circles, singing over and over again, Dee-Daw Day, Dee-Daw Day. It's a relatively simple dance expressing great joy. When she gives voice to her, or when she's too happy to hold it in any longer, when words are inadequate to give voice to her euphoria, she has to dance to release her joy. So she does the Dee-Daw Day. On this particular occasion, I was irritated. Mallory, hurry, I prodded. So she did. She began running in circles faster and faster, chanting, D-Daw Day, more rapidly. No, Mallory, that's not what I mean. Stop with the D-Daw Day stuff and get over here so I can dry you off. Hurry. Then she asked a profound question. Why? I had no answer. I had nowhere to go. Nothing to do, no meetings to attend, no sermons to write. 
I was just so used to hurrying, so preoccupied with my own little agenda, so trapped in this rut of moving from one task to another, that here was life. Here was joy. Here was an invitation to dance right in front of me, and I was missing it. And the story goes on. I won't continue here, but he does join her. <laughs> so the rest of the story says that he got up, took Mallory's hands, and began to do the D-Daw dance with her. And that Mallory said, you're not too bad at that for being an older man, just saying. <laughs> Psychologists say that we break our lives into two big components. Those are the big, the big decisions or big things and the small things. We tend to put more credence, more value on the small things of life. But according, and, and, and uh, sorry, put more credence on the big things of life and almost dismiss the little things, like spending time with your kids. But sociologists are saying we got it backwards, that the most important things in life that bear the greatest fruit are the little things that we sometimes forget about. It's, it's the, the story time with the kids. It's the D-Daw day. Can I ask you, by God's grace and help today, that will you learn the D-Daw day dance? To stop in the middle of the crazy of your life and celebrate, to acknowledge, to discern, but to acknowledge and live out the joy that comes from the little things. It's a child's laughter. It's the, it's, it's the celebration of a birthday. I, it's the little things that leave the most important and lasting impression on people. Because when we come to the end of our life, we will re be replaced in the big things. There's going to be a day when no one remembers that Pastor C was a senior pastor, and that's okay. But I'm hoping my grandkids remember how I love them. How we went for papa dates. How we did, we went for hockey games. Please don't miss this moment, don't allow busyness, the flood of current of busyness to sweep you away from God's plan and purpose, what he wants you to do and who he's called you to be. He wants wholeness in every aspect of our lives, spirit, soul, and body. Okay, moving right along here. It's interesting that uh, some of our friends tell us that the, the Chinese word for busy is an amalgamation of two Chinese symbols, one which is heart and the other is dead. Heart and dead. In Buchanan, James, Mark Buchanan, in the, his book, The Rest of God, makes some very interesting statements where he says, one measure for whether you're rested enough, besides falling asleep in board meetings, is to ask yourself this question, how much do I care about the things that I care about? When we lose concern for people, both the lost and the found, for the bride of Christ, for friendship, for truth, for beauty, for goodness, when we cease to laugh when our children laugh, instead yell at them and tell them to be quiet, or, stop, or, or fail to weep when our wives weep, but instead wish they weren't so emotional, when we hear the news of trouble among our neighbors and our first thought is, I hope that trouble doesn't involve me. When we stop caring about the things we care about, that's the signal that we become too busy. We have to let ourselves be consumed, and we have allowed ourselves, rather, to be consumed by the things that feed the ego but kill the heart. Busyness kills the heart. Jesus said to us, come. Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Matthew chapter 11, 28 and 29 says it this way in the, in the message translation. It says, are you tired? Are you worn out? 
Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the enforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and learn to live freely and lightly. Scripture says, and you will find rest for your souls. How do we find those places, those quiet places of refreshment? In this, the, if, if life is a, is a river that's flowing, we have to find eddies, still water, quiet places where we can pull off, pull out of the current for a while and rest, where we can allow ourselves to be replenished because that's where God finds us and that's where God meets us. What encourages you? What fills up your tank? What kinds of things make you feel whole again? What kinds of things make you feel joy again? Uh, it's interesting when we lead this, I'll give, tip the cards a little bit. When we lead pastors in this, we ask the question, what for you fills your tank? There's this often an awkward pause because we have lost the ability to replenish our souls. We don't even know what brings joy to us anymore. And probably true for many of you because busyness steals from us joy. We experience anhedonia, the inability, the medical condition called the inability to express joy. Well, maybe for you it's going for a walk or a run or listening to music or playing an instrument. Maybe it's painting or drawing or creating something or tinkering in the garage or tinkering in the yard or reading a novel or going to a coffee shop or maybe it's window shopping. Why would that ever make anyone feel happy? I'm not sure. Because <laughs> you're not actually doing anything but looking. I mean, if you, if you can't, if you can't, you can't slaughter that thing, put it in a bag, and drag it home. Then why, why even go hunting? You know what I'm saying? Preach it. <laughs> Taking pictures. You must give yourself permission to stop and enjoy things because that's part of God's plan. The scripture says, Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. The, the Jewish theologian Mueller puts it this way. Can we really know if we're not still? Can we really know God if we're not still? He actually suggests we take this verse and we unpackage the meaning of it by, by subtracting one word at a time. For instance, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know that I. Be still and know that. Be still and know. Be still. Be. When we come to the place of allowing God to bring us to a place of stillness, it's at that time we step into all the God. He, he himself comes and ministers to us. We must live counterculture in this season of time. Finally, quickly, I'm going to give you three enforced rhythms of grace. Three prescriptions for a healthy soul. Three prescriptions for wholeness in our life. We want to come to the great physician, the one who is our healer. And allow him to minister to us in three ways. Uh, by the way, if you called 911 today because the person beside you passed out, you would hope that the ambulance would take them where? To an urgent care center or to the ER. You would hope that the ambulance would not take them to the golf course and drop them off or to the hardware store. You see, when someone's sick, we know where they need to go. They need to go to be attended to by a physician. If we want our soul to be restored, we need to go to Jesus. So how do we go there? Now, maybe you need to call 911 for yourself, but three areas. The first the first area, the first unforced rhythm of grace is the rhythm of solitude. That's the time we set aside to be with God, to, to get to know him, to spend time in his presence. And it seems like I live on this planet. There are days when life is so busy, it's like, 
I had good intentions, but you know what? I, my quiet time today was like driving through the drive through at McDonald's. You know, I picked off the menu. I read my 14 verses. Can't remember what I read, but I did it. Hallelujah. I mean, it's, 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 like, it's like food at the fast food. It's, it's unmemorable. Maybe not even nutritious. Just saying. Just saying. Sometimes we put this quality of time alone with God, solitude on the back burner. And, but we have to take time for what we value. Spending time and getting to know God must be intentional. It doesn't just happen. It's a choice that we make. It's an act of our will, body, soul, and spirit. I say I choose to spend time with God because I know that it's in his presence he restores my soul. I need him desperately. It's so important. Be still and know that I'm God. If I'm not still, I will not know. And I have this passion in my life, Lord, I want to know you. Apostle Paul says, I want to know you, Lord. And that's been a cry of my heart. And I heard the Lord say, you want to know me? Well, the only way you're going to get to know me is spend time with me. Any of you that ever dated know how this works. No one has to force you to pick up the phone or send a text to the one that you're interested in. You do this passionately, excessively, annoying. I mean, I mean. <laughs> how about with Jesus? Just saying, get to spend eternity with him. Might be a good idea to get to know him. What do you say? Solitude. Silence is the second quiet eddy here. We're going to talk about uh, briefly today. Uh, silence is the second eddy, uh, and it's one of the spiritual disciplines that we often overlook. See, in our culture, there, there, is this, there is this cultural current called noise that is sometimes very, very difficult for us. We, we live where there's constant noise around us. It's stressful. Uh, we, we began to realize how difficult it is simply to be still and sit and listen. Noise everywhere, all the time. And if it's not the, the noise of actual sound, it's the noise of other people's opinion. It's interesting. I won't have time to unpackage this, but sociologists are saying that there's an interesting phenomenon that's occurring right now among the emerging generation. And it's, it's called the social media uh, convergence where basically the noise of other people's opinions form our opinions. The ability to think independently and decide what you really think is being lost in one generation. Young people don't allow that to happen. Know what you believe and stand up for what you believe with conviction. The way it's defined is that many young people do not know what they believe until they put a poll out on social media and hear what their friends believe. And that's what they believe. That's the power of noise, the noise of opinion. Most of us then, speaking of raw, true silence, we're, we're uncomfortable with silence. They say the average person can only handle about 15 seconds of silence. You say, no, 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 no. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting where the leader says, okay, we're going to have a few minutes of quiet now. Just wait quietly before the Lord. How long does that last before good old Sister Sally or Brother Joe has to speak up? Because the Holy Spirit has given them great unction in that moment. Probably because they couldn't handle the silence, just saying. That all the earth keeps silence before him. There's a quality of God that we only know in silence. It's not available to us in the activity. As much as I love worship, there are times to be quiet and listen. My wife reminds me of that sometimes. Listen to me. I want you to focus attention, Steve. Put your phone down, Steve. Listen to me. That's what silence provides us, the ability to hear the voice of God. And by the way, there's not time to talk about this here today, but solitude and silence, spending time with your spouse enhances your relationship with them as well. Listening to them, another topic, another day. Solitude, silence, 
God gives us permission to stop. And the third eddy and finally is, is Sabbath. The meaning of Sabbath has really been distorted over time. And it's come to mean some things that it really does not mean. The Jewish theologian Wayne Mueller says this. Sabbath is not dependent upon our readiness to stop. We do not stop because we finished. We do not stop because we have finished our phone calls or finished our projects or gotten through that stack of emails or messages, sent out the report that's due tomorrow. No, we stop because it's time to stop. Sabbath liberates us from the need to be finished. The wise old Sabbath says, stop now. There's a place and a time for us to finish. And the worship team, if you want to come, thank you. Sabbath has been defined as no rules, no guidelines, ceasing work, bearing no load, feasting, celebrating, seeking refreshment, taking a rest. Sabbath is a gift. The Bible says that uh, in Mark chapter 2, 27, Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This is not about how well you keep the rule. It's about how well you rest. It's understanding the intention of God is that we come before the great physician, allow him to fix us. Allow him to bring healing and wholeness to us. Sabbath is that time where we stop. I'm not talking about a specific day. Maybe for you it needs to be because you need the discipline of a day. Maybe I do. But maybe it means you take a Sabbath from screens. Where there's a point in time every day where you say, my Sabbath starts at 8 o'clock at night. And you take the phone and you put it out of arm's reach and you hide it. Or maybe it's a day. Where you say, I'm going to become unbusy and spend Saturday with my kids. I'm going to say no to that extra job or those overtime hours. Because I'm going to choose to do the little things well. Because he restores our soul. And maybe just in keeping of Sabbath, he might restore their soul as well. Sabbath. Silence. Solitude. And Sabbath. Why do we not stop? Sometimes it's because we feel like the, the weight of the world is on our shoulders and that we are fully responsible for everything that happens in our world. That really is an issue of lack of trust, where we don't trust God, that he has our best in his mind. Honestly, because if we trust God and we believe he cares for us, that we can believe that he's going to care for every detail of our life. We can release it to him knowing that he's a God that's good and he has only good in mind for us. So I hear the Lord saying to us today, will you come? Will you allow me to bring you into the quiet place, the still waters of solitude? Come enjoy intimacy with the Father, silence. Come enjoy this gift of time and rest called Sabbath. He leads me beside still waters and there he restores my soul. Shalom. Peace. Wholeness. I'm going to ask you three questions as I close. Three questions for reflection. But before I do, I want to read to you a verse of scripture found in Isaiah chapter 28. The backdrop of the scripture was simply this, that the people of Israel were being led into captivity in Babylon. And the scripture tells us why. They had turned away from the Lord. But the scripture says 70 years were appointed for them to stay in Babylon because they didn't keep Sabbath. They didn't keep the land's rest. 
So therefore, for every time they had skipped the Sabbath year of rest before the Lord, the sabbatical year, God says one year in Babylon. And this is how the prophet Isaiah frames that. He says, come to me. He makes it very, very clear. And he gives us this picture of people that were, that were oppressed with doing. He says, very well then, if you didn't listen to me, maybe you'll listen to foreign lips and strange tongues. I will speak to this people, God says. And I said to them, this is your resting place. Let the weary find rest here. This is a place of repose. But they would not listen. Listen, congregation. I'm speaking to myself. Let's not fall prey to the same thing that happened to Israel. Because what happened to them, listen, because they would not listen. So then, now, the word of the Lord to them will be, do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. Sounds like your life. Panic, busy, doing, going. So, he says, they will go and they will fall backward and they will be injured and they will be snared. Come and find rest for your souls. Come and learn from me some new enforced rhythms of grace. Just bow with me if you would. I'm going to ask you three questions. First question is, what things are consuming my time but are not essential? What things consume my time but are not essential? Number two, what things can I eliminate from my life? How can I reduce busyness? What things can I eliminate? And the third question is, Am I, am I substituting the good for the best? Come to me. Get away with me. And you will recover your life. And I'll show you how to take a full rest. Walk with me and work with me. Show, see how I do it. Learn the enforced rhythms of grace. I will not lay anything heavier or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. And you will learn to live life freely and fully. Holy Spirit, thank you for this time. Thank you for this congregation that I love. Thank you, Lord, for their passion for you and their desire to follow you. And Lord, I pray that you would come and reset our compass today. Would you give us, Lord, a heart that is pointed true north towards you, passionately in love with you, committed to serve you. But most importantly, Lord, I pray that as well as loving and serving you, I pray, Father, you would help us to give and get and receive the gift that you've given to us, which is the gift of a life that's full and overflowing. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but you've come that we might have life and we might live it to the full. May that be our experience. And Lord, we repent. We repent. Would you repent as well? Just before me, say, Lord, I repent. I repent. Lord, I repent of settling for anything that's less than everything that you have for us. And half, much of what you have for us can only be found not in activity, but in rest. We know you. Holy Spirit, reset our compasses today, we pray. In the wonderful name of Jesus, thank you for loving us and bringing healing to us, body and soul and spirit. We're going to go out just with the worship team leading us. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.